Let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. As we begin the study, we'll, we'll study tonight verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're beginning a study of the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are, of course, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Now, my plan is to cover these in this order. 1 Timothy, Titus, and then 2 Timothy. As it's been two weeks, two weeks ago tonight that we did our introduction, if you would please allow me to to review some of that material. And if you're thinking in your head, well, I don't like review, then don't make me call on you to, to, <laughs> to tell me what it was I said two weeks ago. That will show you that you do need a, a, qu- a quick uh, review. We won't review everything, of course, but I'd like to just remind you of a couple things with regarding, uh, first regarding these epistles in general, and then specifically 1 Timothy. And then tonight we'll take a look at the first two verses. Remember that 1 Timothy deals with the two aspects of the subject of order in the local church. The first is the life of the church, and the second is the leadership of the church. The life of the church and the leadership of the church. And then Titus, the second book that we will cover, elaborates on the leadership of the church. So 1 Timothy, life and leadership. Titus elaborates on the leadership. Then 2 Timothy will elaborate on the life of the church. You see how they pan out. 1 Timothy is more general and fundamental than will be 2 Timothy and Titus. Titus expounds how to set the church in order, and 2 Timothy expounds the leader's personal responsibility. Now, in 1 Timothy, Paul teaches that the function of the local church is to proclaim God's truth in the world. The function of the local church is to proclaim God's truth in the world. Sometimes we call that fulfilling the Great Commission. But Paul also teaches that the function of church leaders, Timothy, and in this case the elders at Ephesus, is to expound God's truth in the church. Now, do you, do you see what's going on here? The role of the church is to expound God's, God's truth to the world, but the, the role of leadership in the church is to expound God's truth to the church. These are the same points that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12, concerning the universal church. The saints are to do the work of the ministry, and gifted men are to equip the saints to do that work. See, this whole idea of of professional ministers doing all the work of the ministry is bogus to the max. For you you might can imagine, unless a church has a staff of over a hundred pastors, like I understand Second Baptist does, and even then, you're not going to get the ministry done even with a staff of a hundred that you would be if those hundred then equipped the 25,000 to go out and multiply themselves. So Paul is very clear about this in both Ephesians and in, in the pastoral epistles. The church's job is to go out into the world and fulfill the Great Commission, making disciples and then also teaching those disciples to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. But that takes place first within the church And the pastoral leadership, the teaching leadership, teaching and training the saints, that's you, as to how to do the ministry. So again, one of the purposes of the church is to declare God's truth to the world. This comes up in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. The local church is an instrument that God designed to display his truth. When people see Pine Valley Bible Church, when unbelievers see Pine Valley Bible Church, what did they see? When you drive with the fish on the back of your car, 
What kind of driver are you? You know, one reason I kind of hesitated to have the Pine Valley baseball caps and the T-shirts and stuff just yet. <laughs> Do I need to even finish the sentence? <laughs> no, I mean, but, but seriously, you, you have to, um, uh, we, we have to live this out. If, if this is just something we play here, if we're just playing at church here, we all have this really good behavior. At here, at, at 4101 Grimes or at 7000 Regency, then we are losing something because we've already got us, hopefully. You're already convinced about Jesus Christ. But what about the people that don't know you? Now, I'm not talking about a forced Christian behavior. You know what I mean? Christian behavior. Behavior that somebody has set up as being Christian. I'm talking about genuine behavior. I'm talking about a type of behavior that somebody actually wants to sit down and have lunch with you. That they'd like to ride a bus with you or share a cab with you or sit next to you on the airplane. Something that's actually pleasant. And so this is one of the, one of the purposes of the church is to be a corporate witness for Jesus Christ. Not just an individual witness, but a witness corporately. When people say the, term, say the name Pine Valley Bible Church, what comes into their mind? Does the name does the idea of hey that's a that's a pretty neat group of folks over there, that's a loving group of folks. You know those people are pretty kind. The ones I've met, they're kind folks. Or does it run through their minds? You know what? I understand they're great theologians over there. They know their Bible front and backwards, but man, a little cantankerous bunch. I don't want the second. I do not want the second. I want the first, because that's what God wants for us. We've got a mission to the world, and that mission is a lot bigger than you, or it's a lot bigger than me. It has to do with the eternal salvation of of lost souls, and then the spiritual edification of those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's very important. Timothy is going to pound this home. I mean, Paul is going to pound it home too, Timothy, that behavior matters. So in in view of the purpose of the local church, we must be careful to present an unchanged gospel. Salvation is by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is a non-negotiable. There are some today that seem to think that that is much too easy. Matter of fact, they call it easy believism. Or I've heard that term before. What do they want to do? Make it hard believism? You know, we want to make it challenging believism? You know... <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what they want. I I have an idea. Uh, But what they do is they add works to the gospel. They add works to the gospel of the Bible. And that's wrong. If Paul was living today, I suspect he might use the term anathema, as he did in the book of Galatians. That's what happened to the Galatians. They They had changed the gospel. Paul had gone and taught them. Scarcely had he gotten back from his first missionary journey to Syria and Antioch when he finds out they had already perverted the gospel that he had taught them. This is how he put it. And I want you to listen carefully. If you, want, if you have your Bibles you want to turn quickly to Galatians, this will be it. Paul says, I am amazed. This is Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Now, something's interesting about Galatians. In most all of Paul's other letters, he goes through these introductions. Remember, Romans was... 17 verses long. He tells them how much he loves them, what, how much he's heard about their great work, how much he's grateful for them. Not to the Galatians. Not, not to this bunch. Now, they didn't give him problems with regard to their behavior, but they gave him serious problems with regard to changing the gospel, and he opens up a big can right off the bat. I am amazed 
that you're so quickly deserting him with a capital H, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul is mad in a sanctified way, but he's mad. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The Greek term is anathema. It's a lot stronger than accursed. You fill in whatever blank you want to, just so long you don't stay out of fellowship too long thinking those words. He is, this is strong. This is strong. And then in verse 9, as we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. I love what Paul says next. For now, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ Jesus. This is serious, serious stuff. If a church doesn't have the gospel right, it's all wrong from the beginning. If a church doesn't have the gospel right, it's all wrong from the beginning. Very little else that happens there matters if the church doesn't have the gospel right. So, some add works to faith, and that's wrong. That's a wrong gospel. That's what was going on in the churches of Galatia, and Paul condemns it in the strongest possible language. Others front-load the gospel with a commitment to obedience that can only be realized after a period of spiritual growth has occurred. Some people call upon the believer to believe and something else. To believe and promise God that you're going to obey him for the rest of your life. Oh, come on. Come on. There, there needs to be, certainly we are called to obedience. But obedience comes with maturity. The more mature a believer will be, the more consistently mature, the more consistently they will obey, rather. The more maturity, the more obedience. Don't, let's don't front load the gospel with something other than faith alone in Christ alone. That's what is required at that moment. Faith alone. And then there's a new kid that's appeared on the block. This one you might not have heard about so, quite so much. But it's making the rounds, and that is making propositional, revelational content of the gospel so expansive that one would almost need an advanced degree in theology before they could have any hope of salvation. And this is troubling to me. Ma- making the unbeliever, making, making the person who has, is totally lost understand a whole body of soteriological information before they can say, well, that person was actually saved. God wants you in the kingdom. He wants your neighbor in the kingdom too. You're not going to get there up to the up to heaven and say, you know, well, um, am I getting in or not? It's just, no, I don't think so. You didn't really understand the divine decree like I wanted you to when you were seven. You know, I, I don't think so. Or no, you were Arminian and I'm only letting Calvinists in here. You know, you, that that's not the point. God wants you there. Just a little sliver of faith. Just a little more faith than no faith at all. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one that takes that faith anyway and makes it effective for salvation. You don't. You can't muster up enough faith to satisfy God. You you exercise Your human responsibility is to exercise your will and say yes. The Holy Spirit is the one that draws you into that relationship. He's the one that takes that faith and makes it effective for salvation. So we don't need to strain at this. We need to stick with a simple gospel that Paul preached, that man is justified by faith and not by works of the law. Period. Let's don't add anything to that. If I may. If I may. And I know many of you have a, a Roman Catholic background, and I appreciate that. 
but one of the things that the Roman Catholic Church did that was, was really a, a bad move, if Paul was here, he would call it an anathema, is they added works to faith. They would say, faith, sure. No problem with faith. You can believe if you want to. But you also need to perform good works. Now, that's not terribly different from the Pharisees that followed Paul, who said, faith, sure, no problem. But you need to add circumcision before you're saved. An incredible parallel between the Pharisaic system of salvation and the Roman Catholic view. We need to be very careful. Now, this doesn't mean we're, we're trashing Roman Catholics. We should, we should love them enough to make sure they've got the gospel straight. As long as we're talking about it, let me say this. Some people ask, can a Roman Catholic go to heaven? <laughs> of course. What do, you, what do you mean, can a Roman Catholic go to heaven? Provided that they have exercised faith alone in Christ alone, just like you can. So, yeah, they can. Can the Pope be saved? You bet. If he, if he ever, at a point in time, if he exercised faith, then he was. And his theology might be messed up after that. But, of, of course, let's don't try to overthink this. Sometimes in theology, I think we got a little too much time on our hands, and we try to overthink issues. And uh, we're, we're doing our best to keep as many people out of heaven as we can do it. And uh, I don't want to make the gospel less than what it is, but to make it more than what it is, is, to quote Paul, an anathema. Now, doctrinally, that was with regard to the unbeliever, but, but doctrinally, Paul says, and we'll see it next week, there must be no majoring in the minors. No majoring in the minors. We need to major in the majors. There are so many things that are vitally important, and then in many of our conversations we get off the track and start arguing over things that don't matter. I had a great conversation with Cindy last night. I don't think she's in here, so I can always get away with it. She's not here. But no, she, she, she brought, we were talking about a theological subject, and she said, she said what she should have said. She says, does it really matter? Now, in this particular case, it did. It was vital because it went right straight to the character of God. It did really matter. And then we were talking about another issue today, and I saw that she had helped David with a poster of Paul's second missionary journey. And I noticed on the poster she had put Paul's second missionary journey, 49 to 52. And I said, and she did all this work for me. I said, listen, you're going to have to change that. And she said, well, why? I spent all night on that last night. I said, because in my view, Paul didn't start that second missionary journey until 50. So I believe, I believe it was really 50 to 42 in my view. And she said, well, it's in this map right here in this Lutheran Bible. And I said, well, nevertheless... Doesn't matter. I mean, he, I, I don't see how he could have done all the stuff he needed to do. You know, write Galatians, get back to Syria, Antioch, go down to Jerusalem, come back up and get everything done, and couldn't have left by January. I, don't, I just don't see it. I think it was 49. And she said, does it really matter? And I said, no, it doesn't really matter. You see, you see, that's the difference. But you know what? To major in that minor, to split a friendship over whether Paul left in 49 or whether he left in 50, that's majoring in the minors. And Paul's going to say right off, right from the get-go, that's not what this is all about. There are some really serious issues we need to tackle before we start splitting the sheets over, did Paul leave in 49 or did he leave in 50? Do you see the point? Well, if you don't see it this week, you'll definitely see it. You'll definitely see it next week because he is going to really come down hard on some people who he calls false teachers. And the churches, and the reason I say churches, there was more than one church as far as we understand it in Ephesus. These were all probably small house churches. But there, was, there were some people who were not doing the right thing. So we don't major in the minors. Paul says there should be no claim to what, what it was called back in those days, higher knowledge. 
There should be no distortion of the truth. In this epistle, Paul warned Timothy about all these threats to the purity of God's truth. So when we say that the pastoral epistles are not just for pastors, can you start to see why? If God gives me a command, if God gives Paul a command, I'm talking about associate pastor Paul. You know, if Paul gives Will a command, you see, there's an implied command to you as well. You see that? It's not just a command to me. If he tells me to do something with regard to you, then you're, the implicit command is for you to follow along with what he told me to tell you to do. Make sense? I hope so. Now, in addition, in addition to the purity of the gospel, in addition to purity in doctrine, Paul also said that there should be worship that is unceasing. This was Paul's point when he gave instructions concerning the priority of prayer. This is kind of what I had in mind when I gave a, an exhortation for you to join us as often as you can in prayer. And let, let, me, let me just put this past you, or, or on you, not past you, I hope. And that is that, say, on a, say next Monday, uh, the third Monday of April, you can't be here for the missionary prayer meeting. You know what would be a really neat idea? Just say for some reason, not that you just didn't want to be here, but you just absolutely couldn't be here. Take the missionary prayer list that you do have. Sit down at your home and go through that list from 7.30 probably to 8.30 as, as we're doing it here. It, it can be done. God can hear us here and there both. You know, it, it, he's big enough to do that. But worship, worship must be unceasing in the church. Worship in the Bible is the due response of rational creatures to the self-revelation of their creator. Dwight Pentecost put it a little more simply, is that worship is the response to revelation. We learn about God. What we learn is so lovely, it's so beautiful, that we want to fall down and worship him. The more you learn about God, the more you'll love him, and the more you want to worship him, if you truly are learning about him. Worship is also an honoring and glorifying of God by gratefully offering back to him all the good gifts, all the knowledge of his greatness and graciousness that he's given to us. It involves praising him for what he is, thanking him for what he's done, desiring him to get himself more glory by further acts of mercy, judgment, power, and trusting him with our concern for our own and for others' well-being. There's many, there are many aspects of worship. We talk about them almost every Sunday morning. There, there is the aspect of fellowship. Fellowship can be an aspect of worship if we are so loving one another that it reflects God's love for us and the love within the Trinity. Of course, prayer is an aspect of worship. Giving is an aspect of worship. Singing, singing praises to God is an aspect of worship. Some churches think that worship doesn't, uh, that worship ends after the singing. It doesn't. Other churches believe that worship doesn't start until the message is being preached. That's not true either. It's, a, it's all encompassing. And whatever we do, we need to do it as unto the Lord. And if we're going to sing, if you have been saved by grace through faith from your lost estate, how dare we, how dare we not sing joyfully from our hearts? Just a thought. Giving is an aspect of worship as well. And uh, the, the Lord's table, water baptism, prayer, all these are aspects of worship. But worship is basically the due response of a rational creature the self-revelation of the Creator. And the local church must persevere in ministry without failing. If it's to do this, the church needs leaders, watch, who live the truth consistently and who minister consistently and motivate others under their leadership. The Bible knows nothing. 
the Bible knows nothing of a do as I say and not as I do, Pastor. Now, I know I'm setting a standard for myself. It's, it's a challenging standard. It would be a lot easier for me to switch that around and to tell you otherwise. Timothy doesn't, I'm sorry, Paul, speaking to Timothy, doesn't allow that. That is not allowed. And if that is the, the call for a pastor to have behavior that is consistent with what he teaches, it's, it's a call for all of us as well to live consistently with what it is that we know. Would you turn that down? I also want you to notice some implications of the truth, that the purpose of the church leader is to expound God's truth to the saints. First, a church person in church leadership must be absolutely loyal to the truth. Paul will tell us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Preach the word. Second, his behavior toward others must be consistent. He must have a deep commitment to fulfilling his purpose of being a good example as well as his purpose of communicating the word verbally. Also, in his personal life, he must persevere. He must continue to let God's truth sit in judgment on his life. He must continue to be responsive to the truth. He must also continue to behave in harmony with the truth. I wonder... If one of the one of the reasons why the pastoral epistles are not taught that often, I just wonder, is because of the standard that it sets for the one who's going to be expounding these epistles. Maybe sometimes people don't want you to know that there is a standard of behavior that is required of pastors. But there is a standard that's required. No pastor lives consistently, perfectly, in fellowship with God. Nobody does. I don't. There's no pastor on this planet. The Apostle Paul didn't. We all fail. We have to go to God and confess our failures. But a, but, but, but a life that, is, that, is point, that points you toward Jesus Christ is what God desires. He does not desire perfection. He desires consistency. And that's what's required of me. I've told you a lot about what's required of you over the last 12 years, haven't I? So now you get to see what's required of me. But... If you see what's required of me, then you're also going to find out it's required of you too. So we're all in the same boat. By way of application, let me point out three things that the church needs to watch out for, and then two things that we should be aware of. They're they're similar. The first thing, the church should be aware of false doctrine. And I mean any doctrine that departs from the essential tenets of the faith, not whether it was 49 or 50. If one says 49 and another one says 50, that doesn't make them a heretic. Be very careful, please. If you come out of this church, be very careful using the H word with somebody. Don't just, don't just call any view that you disagree with heresy. Okay, that's dangerous. Don't do that, please. You know, who, you know who's going to embarrass? Me. It's going to embarrass us as a group. They're going to think, what kind of teacher do you have that's doing that? There are heresies out there but probably not as many as are being called heresies. There are certain honest disagreements among very fine theologians about fine points in theology. It doesn't make them a heretic. A heretic is one who denies the deity of Christ, who denies the virgin birth, who denies the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, those kind of big things. Okay? So let's be careful about using the H word. The second thing we need to be aware of is a failure in prayer. We've already talked about that tonight, so we'll move on. We also need to realize that there should be no failure in our doctrine, of a, the doctrine of a pastor, the duty of a pastor, or the diligence in a pastor. So, in other words, behavioral issues. Now, with the few moments that we have left, and we just have about six minutes or so, so I'd, I'd like to get into at least the first two verses, if you will. 
if, if we may. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior and of Jesus Christ, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this is a fairly typical greeting for the Apostle Paul, and as usual, except in the books of the letters to First and Second Thessalonians, Philippians, and Philemon, Paul, where he doesn't do that, but here Paul reminds us, as he does in all of his other letters, that he's an apostle. He's not bragging. He's letting you know there's a reason why you should listen to him, that he has apostolic authority. Now, he doesn't just have apostolic authority because he went out and grabbed it. He didn't win it in the lottery. He didn't raise his hand when somebody said, anybody want to be an apostle? You know, I'll, I'll do that. That's not how it works. Paul was an apostle. Look, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. The Greek word here is, is epitage. It, it means the right or authority to command. So his apostleship came straight from a sovereign God. That's what we call this. The right to command is called sovereignty. The right to rule, theologically, is called sovereignty. God is absolute. He is absolute authority, and he has the right to do whatever he wishes to do with his creation. Did you get that? He's got the right to do whatever he wants to do with his creation, provided it doesn't violate some other aspect of his character. His sovereignty can't violate his holiness, or his righteousness, or his justice, or his love. He can't violate himself. He can't be something that he's not. But God, has, as the creator, has the absolute right. Doesn't the potter have the right over the clay to make one a vessel of honor and one a vessel of dishonor? You better say yes. The Greek text demands it. He has the absolute right to do that. That's what Paul is establishing in Romans 9. He has the right. He is sovereign. Does that mean he's necessarily going to do that? Not necessarily. That's not what that passage is talking about. But he has the right to do it. We should never, ever, ever forget that. Technically... Sovereignty is not a divine attribute, but rather it is a divine activity in relation to the universe. It's, it's part of God's activity rather than part of his nature. Sovereignty is God's control over his creation, dealing with his governance over it. So God, sovereignty is God's rule over all of reality. You know, it's God's universe. He had the right to appoint Paul as an apostle provided that appointment did not violate any other of his divine attributes, which, of course, it did not. God will not, God's will will never violate his own character. Now what about, what is an apostle? In the broadest sense, an apostle is anything which is sent or by which something is sent. Or anyone who is sent or by whom a message is sent. Now in classical Greek, way back before New Testament times, the term could refer to a naval expedition and an apostolic boat. It was a cargo vessel in classical Greek times. But in later Judaism, apostles were envoys sent out by the Jerusalem synagogues to collect tribute from the Jews of the dispersion. So this is how the term was used as it came to develop. But in the New Testament, the term takes on a more specific meaning. In its widest sense, it refers to any gospel messenger who is sent with a spiritual mission, anyone who in that capacity represents the sender, which is God himself, and brings the message of salvation. When it's used in this way, Barnabas was an apostle. Epaphroditus was called an apostle. Apollos, Silvanus, Timothy, they're called apostles. Now, not in the same sense that Paul is called one. But these are people who are generally sent out. But Paul, Paul is an apostle in... 
the richer and more specific sense of the way that this word was used in New Testament times. His apostleship was the same as the apostleship of the twelve. So sometimes we speak of the twelve and Paul. Paul even stresses the fact that the risen Savior had appeared to him just as he had appeared to Cephas or Peter in Galilee. That same Savior that assigned Peter the office of apostleship also assigned Paul this particular task. And then Paul was totally occupied with it, with it and with his Savior, with his Savior first and then with the task for the rest of his life. The characteristics of full apostleship, and I mean the apostleship of the twelve plus Paul, were as follows. In the first place, the apostles have been chosen. They've been called and sent forth by Christ himself. They've received their commission directly from him. We're talking about the more specific type of apostle now, the twelve and Paul. Second, they're qualified for their tasks by Jesus. They've been earwitnesses. They've been eyewitnesses of his words and of his deeds. Specifically, they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Third, they've been endowed in a special way with the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who leads them into all truth. Fourth, God blesses their work. As an apostle with a capital A, God blesses their work, confirming its value by means of signs and miracles. That's why Paul did miracles, to confirm his apostolic ministry. Not primarily to alleviate suffering. There were people at the end of his his ministry, Paul apparently could not heal. His, his, his ministry had already been validated by that point. Signs and wonders and miracles were used primarily to validate a message or a messenger. And then fifth, their office is not restricted to a local church. Neither does it extend over a short period of time. On the contrary, it's for the entire church and for life. You see, I have authority over one local church. I have leadership over one local church. An apostle would have had authority over many. There are times when people think, when people ask me, and this is, this, I know it's right at the end, so I don't, but I don't want you to miss this. It's a very practical application. They'll ask me, what do you think about what's going on at blank? You know what I answer them? That's none of my business. What's going on at Pine Valley Bible Church is my business. But how another person handles you know, a particular situation at another church, that's that local church's business. I'm not an apostle. Now, I can give you an opinion as to what we would do if that happened here. Uh, you know, I could do that, but I'm not going to go about sticking my nose in any other local church's business. And it's nice if they don't stick their nose into ours either, which we've been really spared from. I, I appreciate that. Now, one, one quick, uh, one very, very quick note, and that is that some folks believe that, that remember how they had the, the, the disciples had the election after Judas's defection? And uh, they draw lots, they ask for God's guidance, and they choose Matthias. There are some people that are really upset with that uh, election of Matthias. And they think that, that Matthias was not actually the 12th apostle. It was Paul who was called to be the 12th apostle. He replaced <laughs> Judas and not Matthias. Actually, that view is fairly difficult to sustain scripturally. It looks like Matthias was a legitimate apostle. There was 12 plus Paul. That that's, seems to be the most straightforward way of understanding Acts. Now, perhaps you don't understand that way, but that's the most straightforward way of, of understanding it. Now, the idea about God being our Savior, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, this is something that's characteristic of Paul in the, in the pastorals. Jesus is our hope, generally, in that we have set our hope on him, and specifically, in that we look for his appearing when God will complete or perfect our salvation. We call it our glorification. 
Paul's not describing here so much a relationship within the Godhead. He's describing a relationship that we have with him. Now in verse 2, quickly, Timothy, to Timothy, we talked about him a bit in our introduction, who he was. My true child in the faith. Paul may have been the one to lead Timothy to faith in Christ, or he may be speaking about here, leading him from the point of faith into a maturing relationship with Christ. More like a mentoring relationship, where one believer helps to carry along another believer and teaches them and demonstrates what Christ-like behavior is to them over a period of time. That happens one to a group, but it also can happen and ought to happen many times one to one. And this is what apparently Paul does. Now he says three words, grace, mercy, and peace, from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. The the term um, kadis, which is the term that's translated grace here, is very similar to a a Greek greeting in the classical times. It was, was, you might hear a similarity. Paul says kairos. Kairos, a Greek that was just meeting someone else on the street, would have said kairi, kairiopilo, which would have meant greetings, my friend. Well, Paul takes a normal, usual, customary Greek greeting and changes it just a little bit into a Christian greeting. So instead of saying kairiopilo, which means basically hello or greetings, he says kairos, which means grace. Grace is a rich word. Grace is, grace is something that we've, we've studied extensively in our study of the Romans, but it's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's unmerited favor. You see, grace means that we're getting something we don't deserve in a positive way. We're getting something we don't deserve in a positive way. Now, mercy, on the other hand, is the, is the other side of the same coin, and that is we're not getting something that we do deserve. We're not getting something that we do deserve. Grace is a positive We are getting something we don't deserve in a positive way. Mercy means we're not getting something that we do deserve. And then peace. Peace is the the Greek term irene is the equivalent of the Hebrew term shalom. You've probably heard that term before. Even though you don't speak Hebrew, you probably have heard that in the past. Shalom is is the Hebrew word for peace. It was a common greeting. So like kairi opivo would have been a common greeting for a, a just one Greek meeting another one on the street. Shalom would have been a common greeting for one Jewish person that met another Jewish person on the street. So Paul pulls in both the Greek audience and the Gentile audience in, I'm sorry, both the Greek audience and the Jewish audience in this greeting as he almost always does. So the, the text reads this way, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, we have confident expectation of him. This is the one we can grasp upon, grasp onto. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. As we gather together again next week, we'll continue with this particular study. But in the opening verses of this, of this great epistle, Paul introduces a personal but formal letter to his friend Timothy by reminding all of his apostolic commission that was given by God himself who had the right to appoint him. Timothy, as well as the church at Ephesus, and all those who read this letter should keep this in mind as we read the, the words of Paul here. Paul is, this is not Paul's opinion about anything. That's going to be very, very critical when we get to chapter 2. And when we get to chapter 2, I want to remind you what he said in, in, in the very first verse. He is an apostle by the command of God, by the sovereign right of God. He is speaking for God here. He's not exercising a personal opinion. And that's going to be critical. I'll remind you of it when the, when the particular verse comes up. But God is speaking. God is, is being represented by Paul here. His words are thus authoritative. And as such, 
We have an obligation, just as the Ephesians did so long ago, to listen to them and to obey them.